Good afternoon and welcome to the 196th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of the challenges in delivering the COVID-19 vaccine in the United States with Jamie Ann Ernest, Senior Researcher for Assessment, Monitoring and Evaluation at the U.S. Department of Defense Center for Global Health Engagement. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, January 5th, 2021, there are 1,863,653 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 20,977,966 cases reported in the United States, and there are 356,203 deaths reported in the United States, that's up from 352,645 reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. I'd like to continue that now. I'm gonna read two obituaries, both of these published as part of the Guardian News, Kaiser Health News, series that they've been publishing about healthcare workers in the pandemic. The headline is Mother Beamed as Daughter Followed Her into Nursing. This appeared in The Guardian by Sarah Varney. Elaine McRae was determined not to let the coronavirus change her family's traditions. When the, pan when the pandemic caused the cancellation of daughter Monica's in-person nursing school graduation from the University of Mississippi in mid-August, McRae surprised her youngest daughter with a personal pinning ceremony at her home in Pascagoula, complete with cake and balloons. McRae beamed as she put the pin on her daughter's blouse. Her eldest daughter, Allison Nolta, remembers her mother as unstoppable. It didn't matter if she got off a 12-hour shift overnight. She was always there for soccer games and dance recitals, Nolta said. A cardiac nurse, McRae volunteered to work in the COVID-19 unit. Sheathed in protective equipment, she was exceedingly careful, but relayed stories of her patients' wrenching deaths to her family. In mid-August, she developed a fever and difficulty breathing. On the 25th of August, McRae insisted Monica drive her to Memorial Hospital at Gulfport, where she worked. McRae tested positive for COVID-19. She would fight for 72 days. She was intubated and then given a tracheotomy. Her lungs ravaged. They were like paper, Nolta said. She died November 5th. As she battled, McRae was aware of her daughter's accomplishments. Days before she died, McRae was told her youngest daughter had passed her board nursing exam. I'm going to read a second obituary today. The headline, 
doctor with blood cancer kept working through the pandemic. Here in the Guardian, by Phil Galowitz. Dr. Mohammed Jawed grew up in Pakistan and moved to New York for his medical residency in the 1990s. When his training ended, he received job offers in Corbin, Kentucky, and Las Vegas. He chose the quiet southeastern Kentucky town and spent over two decades in private practice. Jawed carried around medical journals to read the latest in medical science, said his former wife, Ladan Hassani. He loved to watch cricket, staying up late to watch matches from overseas, she said. His other passion was their daughters, Fareen, age 8, Hannah, age 18, and Ghazal, 25. He watched television and laughed with the girls with SpongeBob SquarePants among their favorites, she said. Joed owned his medical practice, Bluegrass Medical Center. He was also medical director at Continue Care Hospital, a long-term care facility in Corbin, and was co-medical director for the inpatient physical rehabilitation unit at Baptist Health. Joed was diagnosed with COVID-19 in September after others in his office tested positive, Gustav Joed said. He died at the University of Kentucky Medical Center in Lexington on October 31st. In early 2019, Joed was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, a type of blood cancer. After treatment, he came back to a reduced work schedule that summer. This year, Joed saw patients via telemedicine, but also saw patients at the office hospital and nursing home, Ghazal said. He was immunocompromised, but Joed, who wore N95 masks, wanted to keep helping. He had no trouble using protective equipment. I wanted him to stay home, but he would say, no, I have to do this, Ghazal said. That was his life. That was what he was best at, being a doctor. I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Dr. Jamie Ann Ernest. She's the Senior Researcher for Assessment, Monitoring, and Evaluation at the U.S. Department of Defense Center for Global Health Engagement. And she's Assistant Professor in Preventive Medicine and Biostatistics at Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. She has served as a Branch Chief in the Office of the Director of the National Institutes of Mental Health a program evaluation translational scientist and strategist at headquarters, Department of the Army at the Pentagon, an evaluation methodologist at Army Public Health Center, and as a senior health administration fellow at the National Vaccine Program Office in the office of the Secretary of Health, the Department of Health and Human Services. There, in that role, she supported multiple national vaccine advisory committees and coordinated the National Vaccine Advisory Committee's Vaccine Confidence Working Group. She received her PhD in Infectious Disease Epidemiology and Public Health Policy from the University of Glasgow as a Lord Kelvin Adam Smith Scholar and her Master of Public Health in Health Management and Policy from Drexel University. She's a Medical Reserve Corps Field Epidemiologist volunteer who conducts contact tracing, testing, and vaccination clinics in her spare time. And we should note that she's appearing in her personal capacity the views are not endorsed by and do not represent the United States federal government. Jamie and Ernest, thank you so much time for thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID calls today. It's my pleasure to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me on. So let me start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling from and um, what the pandemic situation is looking like there today. Sure. 
Um, so I am calling from the greater Washington, D.C. area, Alexandria, Virginia, specifically, um, which is a suburb directly adjacent to Washington, D.C. Um, and the situation in uh, this area today is pretty similar to, to what it is in a lot of major metropolitan areas where we have approximately 380,000 cases right now in Virginia. We have about 40,000 cases in Washington, D.C. and I think about 340 cases, 340,000 cases in, um, in, in Maryland right now. So in this kind of area that we call the DMV. So, um, you know, over, you know, well, well over, um, you know, sub 700,000 cases, um, or, or 800,000 cases in this area. Um, and, uh, they put those reports out relatively. I think there, there should be one out probably today. They usually come out on Monday. So it should be, should be published today. Um, and, um, we are in, um, a relative state of of social social isolation, um, with the vast majority of schools, um, you know, are doing distance learning and are closed, and um, we uh, have you know limited limited services, um, and it's been pretty consistent since the summer here. Um, mm. And then today we had a nice. Um, rally uh, of supporters of the outgoing administration right in Washington, D.C., um, so large mass gatherings of people um, with uh, in close, close quarters with each other um, in an outdoor rally standing, you know, side by side in a crowd with no masks. So my best wishes to frontline healthcare workers in the area. Right. I saw reporting on that this morning and the advisory uh, to tell people to stay away from the nation's capital, which is it's such an absurd thing to hear that people should have to stay away from the nation's capital. But particularly from a public health perspective, um, you know, the idea that, you know, people who do have to go to work or people who are essential workers there have to be placed in this additional sort of jeopardy. It's it's a little hard to fathom. It is. Um, I think that we have to be mindful, though, that this is not unheard of behavior in the course of pandemic emergencies, that there have always been um, ideological objections to non-pharmaceutical intervention suggestions, and quarantines are historically unpopular. Um, both socially and politically. Um, and I think that so much of what we've seen play out in the pandemic thus far isn't unprecedented, even if the pathogen itself is. Well, let's um, go back a little bit and get some of your background, Jamie. Um, you've had so many interesting roles, and I wonder if you maybe get started a little bit generally how you first got drawn into public health, but I also want to hear about your work with vaccine confidence. And then and then we'll we'll talk about what you're seeing happening with the vaccine this year. Um I so my interest in public health I think is you know goes back probably to childhood. You know, I, I think I always wanted to be in some sort of medicine. And it was actually during my undergraduate work at Temple University in Philadelphia 
um, that I uh, was a pre-med student. I studied clinical psychology and cognitive neuroscience. And I had the great pleasure of being in the undergraduate honors program there, where I took a class in medical humanities as a part of my pre-medical education. And it was taught by this absolutely fantastic professor named Paul Lyons. I think he's at UCLA now. And um, he took an interest in my interest in applying principles of clinical medicine to larger population-based problems and really encouraged me to kind of think about public health um, as an inroad into my career in medicine. Um, he encouraged me to undertake a master's in public health, maybe before I entered medical school. I was in a bridge program there to go to Temple University Medical School um, right after my undergraduate. And so I found the MPH program at Drexel University. And um, after my first semester, I was hooked. So I ended up not getting the MD and, and getting a PhD in, in epidemiology. So that's kind of how I came to public health um, was through um, mentorship you know, a suggestion that I apply my thinking to, you know, really broad population-based kind of policy problems as opposed to just individual clinical ones. And among the many roles you've, you've held, you did, you were part of this Health and Human Services Vaccine Confidence Group. Can you talk a little bit about that work? Sure. So um, I think the committee, I think the National Vaccine Committee that everybody's kind of talking about right now is called ACIP which is the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which is a part of the Centers for Disease Control or the CDC. But a kind of less well-known vaccine committee um, is the National Vaccine Advisory Committee or the NVAC. And the NVAC sits in the office of the secretary at the Department of Health and Human Services. And it is the kind of core function of the national vaccine program. So not everybody knows that we actually have a national vaccine program. We have a, we have a national vaccine plan and we have a national vaccine implementation plan. And there is a policy shop and office that supports the convening of this national advisory committee, um, of which the, um, assistant secretary for health is the head. And this advisory committee, basically convenes experts in all areas of clinical vaccinology, vaccine behavior, vaccine development, um, and serves as the core advisory committee on um, all things vaccine for the United States. So um, during the course of my, my public health work um, at Drexel, I became very interested in how the things that we want to do for populations as public health professionals um, are often barriered not just by things like health inequalities or access or availability, but by the, the human condition, people's ability to actually undertake and utilize what it is that we are recommending they do. And so I, um, I was kind of ahead of the game with my, my PhD while I was at Glasgow and I saw the opportunity to spend a couple of years, um, during my PhD, uh, in this senior fellowship position at HHS in this office with this committee and, and I took it. 
Um, now this committee convenes multiple working groups. So some of those working groups are maternal and child, you know, immunization or specific to influenza or, you know, attempting to address vaccine development or vaccine surveillance. Um, and at the time, we were just kind of post the H1N109 pandemic. We had a couple of measles outbreaks um, and um, they convened a working group um, filled with both, you know, federal, local, um, you know, state level and academic experts um, and industry experts uh, from across the national vaccine infrastructure to discuss, um, you know, vaccine hesitancy. Why in a time of abundance do we have such a difficult time, you know, getting people to, you know, uptake vaccines that are potentially life-saving? So at the time that you were um, doing that work, was there already a pretty um, sophisticated understanding of anti-vaccination feeling as a as a sort of a movement at that point? I mean, help us understand kind of the history of that trajectory, because that's going to coincide with our discussion of the COVID-19 vaccine as well. Well, the anti-vaccination movement is as old as vaccines, you know, so I think that we have this sense, we have this lack of, of historical perspective on, on even as public health professionals on this type of human behavior, this resistance to, you know, public health interventions when they're really just about as old as the public health interventions themselves. So, you know, from the inception of, you know, inoculation um, and vaccination, um, there has been resistance to vaccines for a lot of the same reasons. You know, distrust in institutions and, you know, anti-science sentiment and fear. And so, I mean, there's there's just, there's a pretty rich history of vaccine denialism and um, resistance to it. So, big literature on it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. And I'm glad that you can sort of bring that, you know, good grounding in, in that. And yet at the same time, there's that, you know, the countervailing feeling that in the urgency of a pandemic and with the resources of the wealthiest country in the world available, that we should be able to, you know, there's this general sense that when the government and science get together, and I think this is a Manhattan Project holdover, mm -hmm. that, that, well, there's no pre you know, preconceived notions we can't overcome. There are no technological barriers we can't, we can't meet. You brought some perspective to that, but it must have been quite something sitting in that working group um, and having to try to explain history to people. <laughs> well, I mean, these are experts. They're not unaware. You know, this, 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 yeah. you know, they're, they're tracking, I think, to a certain extent. But I think we're all human, right? And we all get frustrated. And we think with every new crisis, the response itself is new as well. And I mean, it can be very grounding to kind of step back and take that historical perspective and think about what has worked in the past and what hasn't worked. Um, I think some of the things that we face, particularly in such a complex communication landscape, um, is our own frustration, right? Our own frustration with our inability to reach people and to get them to buy into the things that we're recommending that they do. And, you know, that frustration can influence our communication with them as professionals. And I think we always have to be mindful that, you know, this is a fight that humanity's been fighting for a very long time. Well, there's so 
many aspects of what's been going on this year that I want to I want to ask you about. Let me just start in kind of a general way. If you could ground us a little bit, not so much in the vaccine development part, but in the in the getting the vaccine into the population and the vaccination part. What is some of the conventional wisdom around that? The do's and don'ts of how um, how the policy should be formed, how the vaccine should should move literally logistically. Mm -hmm. Let's start with that and then we'll talk about the confidence piece. Yeah, sure. Uh, so um, the vaccine distribution infrastructure is uh, probably one of the most complex logistical and regulatory, you know, medical supply chains that we have. And one of the reasons it's so complex is because the vast majority of vaccines have to be kept very cold, right? They, they contain preservative. They're actually relatively delicate pharmaceutical material and they have to keep, be kept quite refrigerated. And that's something that we call cold chain. So when we're talking about distribution, what's really important for us is not just, you know, getting it on trucks and getting it out, but ensuring that as we transport it, that it remains at the appropriate temperature so it is effective when it gets to its point of dispensing, um, which further complicates things. From a policy perspective, as far as vaccine distribution is concerned, that's an incredibly complex enterprise as well uh, that requires multiple federal departments, agencies, regulations, laws, <laughs> um, agreements, memorandums of understanding. Um, prob we're probably talking thousands of stakeholders, thousands and thousands of stakeholders just at the federal level to coordinate national immunization activity. And the National Vaccine Plan um, is a really fantastic place to start to get a sense. Um, and that's available online to people through the National Vaccine Program Office uh, to start to get a sense of what a massive enterprise it really is. And then when you start to throw in those actual logistical concerns, you begin to see what a truly complex enterprise it, it, it really is. And that is excluding all of the state, local, municipal, and territorial partners that we also have to coordinate with to ensure that once it gets from the federal infrastructure into more local infrastructure, they have their own really complex policy landscape to negotiate to get it actually administered to people. Um, um, just to follow up on that part of it for a second, just before you, yeah, because I want to, because we're talking about sort of urgency of time with this, that national um, vaccine plan, that's not in effect with the sort of normal vaccines that like children will get as it, when they're infants and when they're young children, right? We were talking about getting the, it is. Okay. So this is, is the structure of the infrastructure that holds. Right. So this is one of the many policy complexities that I think have, has gotten kind of lost in the in the academic and the, the general conversation and is a source of great frustration for people. Um, we have a really well thought out, well laid out plan, which is why immunization is so successful in this country, um, because mm. our childhood rates of vaccination uptake are actually phenomenal in this country. The national vaccine plan works. Um, but this is different, right? This is an emergency. So what happens is that the typical infrastructure 
um, is leveraged and utilized. I mean, we're still talking, you know, CDC and NIH and FDA and, you know, FEMA is even involved, Department of Homeland Security. When we talk, when we're talking about the Defense Production Act, we're talking about FEMA, not HHS, not DOD. You know, DOD has its own health system. Um, and, um, could also potentially be involved, you know, in some level of logistics. Um, and at the state level that, you know, that's National Guard. So, I mean, again, we're getting massive here when we start talking about the policy, the policy infrastructure in an emergency. But I think what people don't realize is that, you know, supply chain, cold chain, um, you know, the logistic elements of distribution um, are, from a policy perspective, undertaken under different orders than in the normal state of things. So the policy chain itself is different than the one we typically follow, um, although the entities involved might be the same, but the regulations, laws, you know, and funding mechanisms are different. They're emergency, you know, mechanisms. Um, and when we start to talk about what happens at localities, uh, municipalities, territories, and states, uh, then we get into their very complex policy mm -hmm. administration infrastructure. So it's complicated landscape. It's big, very, very big. So I mean, that's incredibly useful then because these should be, these are, as you're describing it, pre-existing relationships, um, you know, the feedback of information of what's needed in what part of the country and when and in, in what amounts, that's already been thought through, planned out, and discussed. But as you said, now things are on an emergency basis. Mm -hmm. Does that change the, how does that change the logic of um, priority? Of, I mean, now we're, help us, maybe ground us a little bit in, in how the conditions change, have changed this year or under any sort of emergency situation with a pandemic when it comes to vaccines. Yeah, that's a really important question. So again, You'd be surprised that, you know, when we're using something like, uh, again, like the Defense Production Act, um, there's an, there's a regulation attached to that. So this is, I think, where things get funny for people, right? They're like, oh, just use the Defense Production Act. What's wrong with you? You know, but there's actually a regulation attached to that that's really specific. Regulations are our rules. So we have policies and acts and laws, you know, that are kind of these big, broad umbrella ideas. But then we have regulations that underpin them that actually dictate how we execute on, on those, what we can and cannot do. Um, and what we can and cannot do have to be kind of analyzed and approved by the authority that owns that particular um, regulation, and in this instance, that would be FEMA for, for defense production. Um, also, we are asking, you know, regulatory agencies like FDA and um, research agencies like NIH um, and CDC, which does have more of an applied purpose to start doing emergency management activities and to act in a kind of an emergency management context. And that's not what they do. You know, we're talking about, you know, the NIH, you know, Tony Fauci is great, but, you know, that's a research agency. That's where, where you know, allergy and infectious disease research gets done. You know, scientists aren't going to come out of their labs at the National Institutes of Health and start vaccinating people in the streets. You know, that's, that's just not possible. So I think it's, keeping in perspective what the laws, regulations, and purpose of these federal agencies are, and why 
and while I understand how frustrating it is that it seems like the federal infrastructure is passing the buck to the local state and you know municipal governments, that's kind of how we set the system up. You know, federal agencies don't vaccinate people. We create policies and laws that allow for funding and development and kind of you know, supply chain guidance and ethical guidance and legal guidance on vaccines, but we don't vaccinate people, you know, um, right. that's the states. Right. Well, I mean, starting with that, I mean, there's been so much um, education, education, probably people would prefer not to get this year about federalism and how our very mm -hmm. complicated, you know, structures of government are interlocking. And I, and I take your point that it's not part of the plan that Tony Fauci should be, you know, rushing the vials of vaccine <laughs> to give people the shot. Right. Um, but there, on the, the other side of that is that people um, are not, I think in general, to speak for myself, really not often very well versed in where these things come from, because most of us, our interaction with immunization is, is none. Or very little. If we travel, maybe we get some immunizations. We get our annual flu shot. I hope people do. Or um, when they're a child or when they have children. So they haven't needed uh, a shot in this emergency basis. And like so many things this year, people are looking around and saying, well, wait a minute, then who, who is, who am I turning to? Who, you know, who should be delivering this? So let's talk a little bit more about sort of conventional wisdom there. Is it really governors that are playing the most important role in the way that this yes, plays out as a, as a national strategy? Yeah, it is. So, you know, what happens in an emergency like this is the federal government can act activate a couple of things. We can activate emergency funding. We can activate um, the strategic national stockpile, which was not done appropriately during this administration. Um, we can, you know, kind of pull the levers of all these umbrella laws and regulations and, you know, get CDC and NIH and, you know, everybody involved and talking, you know, with FEMA and we can do all of those things. But at the end of the day, we don't have the reach down into the locality um, in order to actually get this done, right? So the way that it's done is that each state should have its own pandemic preparedness plan, um, its own vaccination and immunization strategy. Um, and typically they do and they work really well. And there has just been a system of, of failure to implement um, during this pandemic. And one of the reasons for that and I want to make this really clear to anybody who's listening, and I hope they spread the word on this. Mass vaccination is an, one of the most extraordinarily difficult things we do in public health. And it seems so simple because we're all so used to it going well, you know, with our kids, with our flu shots. It doesn't seem like a, a big deal. It's a shot. How hard can it be to get a bunch of people a shot? Um, and the question is hard because, again, we're talking about distribution, cold chain, setting up vaccination clinics, having the appropriate materials like PPE, particularly during the pandemic, um, and you're actually asking more people to come in to expose healthcare workers. And 
then on top of it, just the logistics, like scheduling and record keeping. And again, we are under, we're operating under emergency orders, which means that there are regulations and guidelines from the federal government for accountability and surveillance purposes that we are asking the states and localities that are administering this vaccine to follow. That is a massive undertaking. It's not a grocery list. You know, it's a massive logistical undertaking. And we are asking completely broken and exhausted state governments and healthcare systems to do it. So I think that that is something that people need to keep in mind is that there's never going to be a singular point of failure that we can look at and say, this is the reason you didn't get the money fast enough. You know, even if they had released emergency funding, which they could have done sooner provided, but, you know, even if they had released it on demand, that doesn't magically materialize vaccination implementation infrastructure. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, you, you can give me a pile of money, but I still need to go to the grocery store and, and buy the food, you know, and then come back and make the dinner. And it just doesn't, you know, money, throwing money at a problem does not equate mm. to, you know, building the appropriate infrastructure and our healthcare systems particularly in major localities are beyond taxed at the moment. We are truly asking, you know, the, the profoundly exhausted systems and people to now undertake a, a massively logistically complicated enterprise to do this, to get this vaccine to people. I want to remind people you're listening to COVID Calls. We're talking about vaccination and COVID-19 with Dr. Jamie and Ernest today. You can get your questions in if you're watching on YouTube live. Just put them right there in the chat. You can put them on Twitter. Just be sure to tag at US of Disaster, or you can even email them to me. People still like to do that once in a while at sgk23 at drexel.edu. So, Jamie, let me, um, with that sort of context that you've laid out for us really, really well, let's talk about this year for you. Um, I was going back and, and looking for um, news coverage about vaccine, um, you know, the possibility for COVID-19 vaccine. And I was surprised I wasn't really following that. But there was news stories from the very beginning um, and even as early as March, uh, op-eds talking about how an eventual vaccine should the ethical concerns of it, how the logistics should work vaccine plan strategy these various things many of the touching on many of the th themes you were just discussing take us inside your year a little bit where you you must have already been thinking about this when you first heard about the pandemic that there would be a vaccine and and these kinds of issues that would emerge this year but i'd like to hear a bit um you know what your year has been like and and following this what kind of preparations you've been making um i think that one of the things I've been most concerned with is that public communication during an event like this is probably one of our best weapons. And I think that sometimes the public health and academic communities that are concerned with events like this, through their sense of moral outrage, you know, through 
you know, this highly politicized environment that we're operating in and, and trying to cope with this event. And, you know, they're really driven to, to advocacy. Um, and it comes from a really good place. It comes from a place of frustration and wanting to help people and wanting to bring clarity and, and accountability to people. But public health risk communication is an extraordinarily complex enterprise. And I feel like I have probably struggled more with my colleagues than I have with the public as far as responding to their concerns. Um, because we might think that we're doing a service when we are holding all of these multiple, you know, points of failure up to the light and trying to hold people accountable. Um, for those, for those failures or, or, you know, or those, those stress points. Um, but we're also asking the public that's kind of watching us do this publicly to trust this federal government and their local governments and their local healthcare systems to serve them and asking them to follow their instructions when we ourselves are often culprits in eroding public confidence and public trust in these institutions um and we aren't always as careful as we need to be um in our public discussions with each other or in our public discussions with the public um about how we inform this this conversation um when what we're really aiming people to do is change their behavior um, and do something that's life-saving um, and and society preserving, which I, I feel like those those are pretty high stakes conversations. So my year has been filled with observing this conversation, getting a hold on what the stress points are, um, trying to be really clear-eyed um, about what we can do with advocacy right now and what we can't, what is just kind of contributing to noise and confusion um, and, and potentially eroding public confidence in the institutions they need to trust somewhat in right now to get through this. Um, and trying to have these conversations with my colleagues um, and, and convince them to come together um, a unified message that, you know, we, we are going to get this done. Um, and maybe there's going to be some hiccups, but that doesn't mean that, you know, the entire system of public health is corrupt and collapsing and, you know, we should all panic because I, I know that there are good points of time right now where, where we all have, but we, we especially now need to continue to stave, stave that off. Um, and, you know, be beacons as much as we possibly can. So when you talk about the, the challenges of clear communication, can you give us an example of one of the hardest aspects of that with with vaccine confidence or with the process of the logistics? I mean, what are some of the hardest things? I know un communication under uncertainty is difficult in emergency management and public health, and that's the job. Yeah, this that's year right. has presented enormous challenges, new books will be written, are being written right now about disaster communication, risk communication right now. Yeah, I'm sure but, everybody will have a book and they'll all be. Yeah, so, so, and, but, but to that point, what are some of the, the hardest challenges of that communication this year? And I'm going to lay aside the Trump effect for a second because we also know disinformation has been a real 
a real part of this, but I, I want to focus on within the public health community itself. What are some of the hardest things to communicate around COVID-19 vaccine? I think it's the scientific uncertainty. You know, like we want to be clear with people that like, yes, this is a new vaccine. And maybe we know a little bit less about its features. Um, and, you know, than, than we when than other vaccines, but instilling confidence in people that it's safe, you know, and that it will be helpful to them, that they won't experience profound side effects, um, and that it's something that they can do to protect themselves, their families, and their communities um, under all of this scientific uncertainty. I mean, this was a miracle of modern science that we had. This is unprecedented in human history that we've had this many vaccine development candidates and trials and um, and good candidates, you know, and now that we have, you know, we have multiple vaccines for this now is crazy. It is, it's, it's unbelievable, it's great. Um, but getting people to understand that when we are seeing vaccine hesitancy in the public, that's not a one size fits all vaccine hesitancy. People are hesitant with vaccine uptake for various reasons. Some of it is, is because of their experiences as a member of a, you know, a minority community that has experienced, you know, horrific and continues to experience and, and right now, you know, horrific systemic injustice in the healthcare system. Some of it is ideological. Uh, some of it is just, you know, people being unsure and, and being afraid. I mean, people are not challenged to take this vaccine um, in a one-size-fits-all basis. And vaccine risk communication and all risk communication um, is more nuanced than I think people think it is. It needs to be targeted to the communities that we're attempting to address. We need to be mindful of the effect that the emotional balance of our conversations have on the public's confidence in what we're doing. Um, and we also need to kind of really understand that public health risk communication and vaccine literature that there are, there, there is a, a very complex landscape of, you know, human cognition that comes with vaccine communication yeah. that, um, is not as simple as you know, fact sheets, flyers, and tweeting, you know, it's it's much more complex than that. So um, I think that everybody has kind of taken on the mantle, again, in good faith, out of frustration, out of a sense of compassion and empathy and advocacy, you know, of kind of considering what they're doing, public health communication, but there's actually a considerable amount of expertise that goes in to public health communication about vaccines in particular, um, and I think that, again, we need to exercise a little bit more restraint and caution when we're discussing these things. Can you tell us a, a little bit about the expectations that, that we should have? And one of the hardest things with all of this has been to, to judge um, what it's going to look like if it's a success. And, and you know, the idea... And, you know, as you were just discussing, I mean, even a really great vaccination program is not going to reach 100% of the United States population. So that's not, that's not realistic. And it's not going to all happen in the month of January. That's not realistic. 
But right. what are some of the boundaries? What should we be thinking about? Or what are you thinking about as you think, okay, this is it's already being reported as a failure. I just did a scan of the headlines. The, the media has picked up this the narrative. Not all media. Some media have, have sort of run with the idea it's a failure. I think other media are being much more nuanced. As you said, it's a 50-state and tribal and territorial project. So mm -hmm. you can't call it one thing or another. But right. there must be benchmarks. What are they? Sure. Well, I mean, I think benchmarks are... So ACIP's recommendations, I think, are a good place to go back. So again, that is the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices at the CDC um, that kind of created this phased, tiered approach to vaccination that we've all been talking about. Um, so I think the, the first part of that, like the first success would be to not have unrealistic expectations. I understand that this administration cited something around 40 million vaccinations or something by the end of December, which would not be feasible under the best conditions. So I think that when we are considering the source of expectation setting communication, we should probably take some of that with a grain of salt and defer to public health expertise. And precedent, once again, there is truly nothing new under the sun. And when we look at percentages of waste, um, the success of something like influenza vaccination, um, we need to look at what we do under normal circumstances that makes a tiered phased vaccine rollout program successful and aim for those same benchmarks, you know? Um, and, you know, none of that would involve, even with the coronavirus crisis, you know, first come first serve mass vaccination events with a relatively scarce vaccine. That's not, you know, it's not feasible. It's not responsible. Um, I've seen members of the press really kind of embrace this idea and, and really try to sell it to the public that, you know, we should just open up stadiums, um, you know, and have people line up and just start, you know, giving out this vaccine. But there's a reason why we have those, these recommendations. You know, one of them is to start to take some stress off of this healthcare system, right? So that would be benchmark number one, that we are vaccinating first, whether or not people are happy with the pace of it, but we are vaccinating first those who are most likely to experience illness and death and need to be under intensive care in our overburdened healthcare system we are and, and frontline healthcare workers. I understand that there are some people, you know, in those groups who are falling through the cracks, but we still need to keep trying to get this phase one complete. That is a, a circle of protection around the epicenter of this epidemic. And that's a carefully thought through strategy. So I think sitting with the logic of why we have that strategy is probably a good benchmark for some people. But getting that phase one done, looking back at precedent, you know, and then when we get into phase one B and we get a little bit further down the chain, we might actually be able to expand, you know, those, those circles of those phases. Um, so they're more encompassing, but, um, I would say that getting as much of phase one A, um, with those in long-term care facilities and frontline healthcare workers, particularly in major healthcare systems that have borne the brunt of this, I think that's, that's, that's the first benchmark. Um, 
with a minimal amount of waste of actual vaccine doses since they're still under production. And um, so far, we're actually accomplishing that. Um, not as quickly as we would like, but I also want to be incredibly clear that we don't necessarily know what those numbers look like because vaccine uptake reporting and surveillance um, has a lot of data lag in it for a lot of different reasons. And, and I would, of course, again, urge people to be mindful that this is a an emergency situation where the people that are administering these vaccines are already pretty much on their knees. I want to just let me just follow up with that, because there was a piece that uh, came out about a month ago in Pew Research Service. Um, December 3rd, they reported um, based on some polling they had done that overall 60 percent of Americans say they would definitely or probably get a vaccine for coronavirus if one were available today. So that's a month old data. Hopefully that's still good. Up from 51 percent who said that in September. Mm-hmm. But about 39 percent say they definitely or probably would not get a coronavirus vaccine, though about mm-hmm. half of that group say it's possible they would decide to get vaccinated once people started getting a vaccine and more information comes available. And only 21 percent were were certain that no nothing could change their mind. I'm stunned by so many aspects of that data. One is that you pick up 9% in just um, 90 days uh, in terms of people saying they would. I just really had no sense of the volatility um, yeah. of public perception around the vaccine yeah. here. So, I mean, coming back to your point about risk communication, this is not some, as you said, this is not some stale set of talking points on a checklist or a couple of tweets that HHS sends out. This is a volatile information mm-hmm. space in which people are literally deciding, not right now because most can't get it, but between now and April or May, many yeah. millions of Americans will be will be making this decision. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yes. Um, yeah. And again, they'll be making that decision on different grounds, right? The, the cognition surrounding that decision will be different for various groups of people. Um, so even the kind of processes involved and the considerations involved are going to need to be thought through when we're communicating, you know, with, with various groups, how we're communicating with them, what we're saying, when we're saying it, um, all matters. So I think that, you know, the vaccine is novel. And that's a little new in, in our, in our vaccine communication landscape. It's been a while since we've developed, um, you know, a novel vaccine. Gardasil is probably, Gardasil and Bexero are probably our best examples. And that was, you know, a good 10, 10 years ago now for Gardasil and, Bex, and Bexero. Um, and we saw a lot of the same hesitancy at first, right? And, poor uptake of the second dose that was needed with Gardasil, which is literally a vaccine that prevents cancer, which I still think is magical to this day that we did that. Um, and um, so we, I guess we're kind of not used to dealing with the amount of volatility in the vaccine risk communication landscape that we're seeing with this vaccine. But one of like one of the best things that's happening is that as people are getting it, um, people see that it's safe, um, that you know nobody is dying in the street from getting the vaccine. There's no profound side effects, um, and that um, once we kind of start to 
normalize getting this vaccine. I think um, in the in the next 30 to 60 days or so, we will probably see those numbers shift again and we'll see more vaccine confidence in, in the public, um, particularly as more members of the public, um, the general public see it. Um, and, um, you know, we, we will probably see that number shift favorably, but we're never going to achieve 100% vaccine uptake. We don't with any vaccine, but we don't need it. Uh, we do not need 100% uptake of, of the COVID vaccine in order for this vaccination campaign to be successful. Um, Just, so uh, progress, not perfection. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We've got a, a comment here from um, Jorge Benavides Rossen, um, who's a frequent uh, participant in COVID calls, and he's just pointing out that even in New York, the mayor's said that a third of healthcare workers have declined the vaccine. But, uh, you know, again, I, I guess I'd like your reaction to that, but also with this understanding that I don't know how static that is. I mean, does that mean that we should assume six months from now, a third of healthcare workers will not be willing to take the vaccine or will they be even allowed to continue in their jobs, and that can, that moves us into a little bit of this ethical consideration: is um, should people be allowed to decline it, or under what conditions? Um, so I, I don't know if you'd seen this this kind of data before that healthcare oh, workers absolutely. themselves are a healthcare uh, healthcare worker healthcare worker vaccine refusal is old news. You know, again, I just I encourage everybody that has an interest in this pandemic and an interest in this vaccination campaign, particularly my academic colleagues, go to the literature. None of this is new. None of the headlines you're seeing, you know, are, are shocking to anybody that's been working in pandemic preparedness or response for any length of time. You know, this is all pretty, um, this is, this is all pretty standard stuff. So some healthcare workers do refuse vaccine and they refuse vaccine for the same reason that everybody else refuses vaccine. Um, they have their own reasons. It could be based on their socioeconomic status and abuses that they've seen in their community. It could be trust in federal institutions or in their own institutions, their workplaces, these massive healthcare systems. It could be for moral or ethical reasons. Some people are abstaining for moral or ethical reasons. I mean, it could be for religious reasons. So, I mean, healthcare workers, um, are not a, you know, homogenized group of people with, you know, a singular belief system. They're people and um, they often refuse vaccines. So something else to think about is that, um, you know, frontline healthcare workers are a bunch of different people. You know, some of them are physicians, some of them are surgeons, some of them are respiratory therapists, nurses, um, pharmacy techs, you know, that are working in the overnight pharmacy. I mean, we're not talking about, uh, we don't necessarily know exactly who we're talking about socio-demographically. And in, in the context of this pandemic, there's literature on healthcare worker refusal. But, um, you know, in, in this context, I mean, I'm not surprised by that at all, you know, which is why continuing to push forward on phase one and really focusing the available doses on phase one to get as many healthcare workers vaccinated as we can is really, really critical um, because they are truly on the front lines. Our healthcare systems need to be up and running and they are just like any other group of human beings and not all of them are gonna show up for the job. So. 
And as far as sure, mandates sure. are concerned, um, like yeah. flu vaccine is a good a, a good um, example of this. You know, you we can't force someone to take a vaccine. We can't hold them down in the street and say, you're a nurse and you have to take this, you know. Um, but institutions, whether it's the federal government or the local government or, uh, you know, New York City Health and Hospitals um, or, or just your local healthcare system can absolutely set mandates, you know, for their own institution that their healthcare workers have to be vaccinated with certain things or they won't be employed there. And that's within their right to do. So it's up to those healthcare systems, you know, what they want to do with those employees. So that happens as a matter of private institutional decision making, or can that actually be done at the municipal, county, and state level? I mean, it can be done at the municipal, county, and state level for municipal, county, and state funded or run institutions. But you know, the um, you know a municipality typically won't dictate to a, a private, you know, or not for profit profit healthcare system. You know that all your nurses need to be vaccinated for, for influenza. We make the recommendation. You know, we make the recommendation. Um, the only place we really mandate um, is in schools, um, and people can still get waivers. And we see outbreaks of you know childhood communicable disease, pockets of outbreaks all the time in schools um, from refusal. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know the extent of that refusal matters too. Sometimes you really have to make a decision about how worth it is it is to address that refusal immediately um, based on the level of you know vaccination that you actually have in a population. One of the things I've enjoyed speaking with you about is that you you move pretty seamlessly between sort of discussion of what government can do, but also what culture can will can tolerate and will tolerate, and and that's a that it's sort of that extra level of complexity with all of this that I want to follow up on with this question, which is that you know so much of our discussion about the vaccine has been will it or will it not be available. You know, the sort of scientific aspect of it, can it be developed? And then the logistical aspect, can it be made available? But we're also talking about whether or not the population or what percentage of the population will avail itself of mm -hmm. it. And I, I guess I want to ask a broader question for you. Maybe it's an unanswerable question, but about responsibility there. Because it, as you were describing earlier, the responsibility to get the vaccine made and to get it in into clinics is itself, it's, there's not one person who's responsible for that in the United States. That's right. And, and, and so, but I, I want to I think about that as a, once it's available, whose responsibility is it there to try to increase the acceptance, the confidence, efficacy, you know, is there, is that also um, a sort of an issue where there's, we're not going to have one person or type of person who's most responsible for that. I mean, again, is it governors? I mean, who should we be looking to to increase confidence in this? You know, we should be looking to all of us. The public health infrastructure is just as 
you know, and the public health community is just as, you know, interdisciplinary and complex and complicated as, you know, the federal policy infrastructure is. It is no one person's sole responsibility to communicate well with the public to encourage more vaccine uptake. Um, we should look to our civic leaders to always, and I understand that this is a point that the vast majority of us are quite jaded on at the moment, but we should always look to our civic leaders to do the right thing and to communicate ethically and to communicate the ethics of vaccine uptake well in a way that people can understand them. But we do also need to come to terms with the fact that human cognition is complex and people have human failings and they're not always going to listen to us and they're going to make personal choices for themselves that we wouldn't make for ourselves or that we wouldn't make for our communities. And it's incumbent upon us, I feel, as the public health community to A, try to bring those people in instead of calling them out, and B, to understand that the right of refusal of any sort of medical treatment or public health intervention is a right. And um, people are making choices maybe that we wouldn't make, but that doesn't give us the right to abdicate our responsibility to continue to communicate in a responsible and ethical manner. So yes, we should have expectations of, of civic leaders of all sorts at all different levels, you know, to communicate about vaccine safety and confidence. But it's also kind of incumbent upon us as academics and leaders in our fields and public health professionals to kind of watch what we're doing as well. Um, because I do firmly believe that I've seen a lot of stuff coming out of those communities um, and people are watching us and listening to us. But I've seen a lot of stuff come out of our communities that's probably not that great when it comes to vaccine confidence either. We're almost up on time. I just want to um, get a sense from you of what you're looking for in the next in the next six months. Some of the projections, uh, some of the mortality projections are staggering. Uh, I mean, it's uh, truly. Uh, and so now the vaccine should be providing a psychological boost, one would think, for people to follow good public health protocols and stay safe until it becomes available. That's complicated how people have been coping with this stress as you and for all the many reasons we've been describing. But talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing between now and the summer. Is there is there a time on the horizon when um, more than 50% of Americans will have had access to this? Uh, do yes. You, do you oh, think yeah. it's going to yeah, really? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And it's also important to understand that we are just starting up this vaccination campaign and there's always issues on startup, right? Until we very clearly identify what the stress points are and look to address them. So I would not expect the entirety of this vaccine, you know, this vaccine campaign, this vaccination campaign to be a, you know, uh, a slow going, frustrating um, situation for, you know, the, the duration. I think that we will be able to vaccinate people much more seamlessly as time goes on and we kind of get our groove um, going. Um, and hopefully 
if we do this well, then we will see infection rates start to reduce. We will see case mm-hmm. rates start to reduce and, and um, we'll have less morbidity and mortality to deal with, which will be nice. Um, I, I am not willing at this point because I don't have enough information about what the stress points are um, and what the startup problems are to speculate about when we can expect to see, say, a 50% or 60% vaccination rate. Um, I, I am unwilling to, to, to just speculate in, in lieu of data. Um, but I will say that I think when we, that, that it will happen within the next six months. Absolutely. And then when it does, I think we will begin to see some, um, some, some sparkle of hope towards a return to more normal societal functioning, um, you know, by this time next year for sure. Do you um, expect any significant change with the new administration coming in, in the, in the way this is going to work or or not? I don't expect that. I, 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 I want to be clear that I expect no radical changes in vaccine administration with the incoming Biden administration, no. I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, the the recommendations that ASIP made, and you know, the the distribution of vaccine is not, you know, was not, let's say, um, influenced by the outgoing administration. So um, I think that maybe there might be some augmented funding um, and some. Uh, some really good public health communication coming from top levels right. yeah. and more coordination right. and collaboration than we've seen, which will be helpful, right? Which will be really, really helpful mm-hmm. and start to help smooth off some of these rough edges. But they're not going to radically change the plan. There's no reason to. It's a good plan. It's a good plan. Mm-hmm. It's implementation that is the challenge. And it would be challenging. I've learned so much in this hour. <laughs> Yeah, I appreciate that. And I've learned so much in this hour. And I and I particularly appreciate your sort of emphasis on um, not downplaying the importance of the vaccine itself and the technology, but really talking about the communication aspect of it. And uh, as you said, there's not there's not one single um, point of failure in all of this. And we shouldn't really call it a failure yet, but there also won't be one single point of, of success that just makes it incredibly hard to communicate about. Um, yeah, and, and we tend to steady we, flow of discussions. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. We just, we, I mean, we tend to kind of focus on. It's, I think, particularly in this highly highly politicized environment, we tend to really focus on those stress points and and those perceived failures, and you know, and everything that could go wrong and is going wrong. But you know, some states have actually been pretty wildly successful um, with their their vaccine. Um, I believe it was West Virginia, although don't quote me on that. That successfully completed um, administering all of their doses of vaccine, you know, within something ridiculous like seventy two hours or something. So, you know, there have been successes and people are getting it done. Um, you know, I, I apologize, you know, that it, it wasn't the 40 million, you know, figure that got floated out there, but I can't overemphasize how we need to consider the source of information like that and to be right. a little bit more reasonable about our expectations. 
So we'll take that good news wherever we can get it. I was laughing today because on the there was a news piece that said uh, Vatican City and the nation of Palau, I think, are almost at 100% vaccination rate. And I thought, well, I haven't checked. I haven't checked the population statistics recently, but I mean, okay, it's great. Let's take take a win where we yeah, can get nice. it. Right? Okay. <laughs> so go West Virginia and any state that can have a success. Um, Jamie Ann Ernest, great conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. And I want to remind everybody, you can catch COVID Calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. We're going to be talking about vaccines all week. I'm going to be talking to Dorit Reese and Ross Silverman tomorrow about vaccines and public policy and legal aspects. I'm going to talk to Dr. Peter Hotez on um, Thursday and more guests throughout the week. So, um, Jamie, thanks a million for your time today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Scott. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 5 o'clock.